Hi, I'm Sarah, and this is the podcast version of my newsletter called Sarah by the Season, where I explore what is piquing my curiosity as I try to lean into nature's wisdom and rhythms. Subscribe and learn more at sarahbytheseason.com. I'm recording outside where I like to write if the weather permits, so enjoy the sounds of September at our place. The title of this week's newsletter is The Loneliness Epidemic, or is it something else? I keep finding myself sucked into reporting on the loneliness epidemic. This epidemic started before COVID. A 2018 report by the Kaiser Family Foundation found that 22% of all adults, that's almost 60 million Americans, said they often or always felt lonely or socially isolated. But the COVID pandemic seems to have exacerbated the problem, so much so that Dr. Vivek Murthy, the U.S. Surgeon General, put out a warning in May 2023 equating our lack of connection with smoking 15 cigarettes a day, among other dire health outcomes. The Surgeon General's report on our epidemic of loneliness and isolation is 82 pages long, with a solid 20 of those pages devoted to a national strategy informing us what we and other stakeholders can do to foster connection, plus a very fancy website with interactive videos and printables. In other words, this is a big deal to our national health and well-being, according to the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. It isn't just the U.S., though. Rates of perceived loneliness seem to be rising around the world. Over the last few years, probably because I'm interested in this whole conversation, so it's likely that I bring it up often, I find myself talking to friends around my age about friendship. Most of my friends say that they wish they had more friends and stronger connections. We wish we had more time for our relationships, and we feel like there are people out there somewhere enjoying more and better connections than we do. I have a few theories about the causes of this loneliness epidemic that I haven't heard much about that I'd like to delve into here. First, maybe it's an expectations problem. Years ago, Grant's therapist assigned him some Brene Brown CDs to listen to. This was before Brene's TED Talk when no one we knew had ever heard of her and we loved her Texas twang and how she cussed just the right amount. While I don't remember a ton of practical takeaways from the hours of talks we listened to together, I know that it sunk into our psyches in ways we'll probably never know. There's one bit of wisdom that she shared that I have since referenced too many times to count. Quote, our stories are not meant for everyone. Hearing them is a privilege, and we should always ask ourselves this before we share. Who has earned the right to hear my story? If we have one or two people in our lives who can sit with us and hold space for our shame stories and love us for our strengths and struggles, we are incredibly lucky. If we have a friend or small group of friends or family who embraces our imperfections, vulnerabilities, and power and fills us with a sense of belonging, we are incredibly lucky. Brene, who, remember, gets paid to study shame and connection, says that we're lucky if we have one or two people in our lives who we trust with our deepest stuff. When I share this tidbit with our friends in these conversations we've been having, they all express so much relief. If Brene Brown says we're lucky if we have one or two of those types of connections, and most of us would say that there are at least one or two people in our lives that embrace our whole selves, it felt like we were okay. We didn't have to worry so much about our relationships. Instead, maybe we could put that worrying time and energy into deepening our existing relationships. Two, maybe it's a social media problem, but not in the way you're thinking. Much of this reporting I've been reading and listening to has tied the loneliness epidemic to social media in the sense that people are spending too much time on social media and don't have time for real in-person connection, which is making them lonely. Or that social media engenders FOMO, which leads to loneliness. You weren't lonely until you saw 10 of your friends hanging out together without you. I think both of these characteristics of social media certainly contribute to the problem. But I wonder if it's not so much social media itself as it is that social media puts people's highlight reels in front of our faces all day long. So it appears that everyone is having more and deeper connections than it feels like I'm having. 
The source of our dis-ease is shutting ourselves into thinking that we need to have more and better friends instead of having gratitude for the connections we already have. It is the comparison baked into social media that then creates a sense of lack in ourselves instead of us noticing a lack on our own and maybe deciding to, say, join a book club or a hiking group to find more connection. Obviously, personality and age comes into play here. I had more friends when I was in school and just out of college because I had less responsibilities, but also because the way my life was structured during those years fostered more ease in connecting. I spent so much of the day with my friends when I was in school and college. In college and after college, I lived with or very near my closest friends, eliminating so many of the barriers to hanging out that I face these days. Work schedule, kids schedules, childcare depending on the kids' ages, distance, exhaustion. In fact, I don't ever hang out with friends anymore. Time with friends has to be scheduled, oftentimes weeks in advance. We might hang out once we get to our destination, but it isn't really anything like the random, fun, and sometimes boring hanging out that I used to do in a friend's dorm room. We tend to compare ourselves to past versions of ourselves, so if we have a couple of close friends now but have a handful of close friends 20 years ago, we judge ourselves for it instead of acknowledging that our lives are completely different than they were 20 years ago. Or we judge ourselves instead of getting honest with ourselves about whether or not our connections are actually lacking, or if we're holding ourselves to some ideal that we see on the internet or that we experienced during a previous season of our lives. Three, maybe it's a social media problem, but not in that way either. To keep piling on social media, because why not? Everybody is doing it. I also wonder if there's a component of the right kind of social activities that make for good social media posts. To go back to hanging out in my dorm room, even if I had social media back then, not much of our hanging out would have made compelling social media content. These days, my favorite activity is hanging out with Grant on her porch, sometimes with the kids, sometimes with friends who we invited over. It's fun, relaxing, basically free, and easy. But I'm not posting it on social media because it really is only fun and exciting to me. In this great conversation with Ezra Klein and Sheila Liming, author of the new book, Hanging Out, The Radical Power of Killing Time, Liming defines hanging out as daring to do not much and daring to do it in the company of other people. That is completely contrary to what social media rewards. When it comes to your social life, social media rewards the epic couples vacations or the it concert with 40 of your closest friends or a flawlessly orchestrated dinner party. Unless you already have a huge social media following, no one gets tons of likes for the video of you and a few friends not doing much and whatever today's equivalent is of my boring college dorm room. Liming goes on to say, quote, Another way to think of this is spending time with others without trying to put too many expectations upon what that time has to do, or what it has to result in, or what it has to produce. Yet, I would say that hanging out itself is not necessarily a skill. You don't necessarily excel at hanging out. You either do it, or you don't do it. But I think there are certain skills that are built into the work of hanging out itself. So I'm thinking of it in the book as a kind of social musculature that we have to expose ourselves to, these sort of repeated scenarios with relative frequency, just like exercise, in order to keep those muscles active and in order to prevent them from effectively atrophying, end quote. Because most of our lives are quite busy, we have to plan out our social activities far in advance. And if we don't get to see our friends as much as we'd like, then it feels like when we do see each other, it needs to be something exciting and something that typically requires meticulous planning and or money. Because we don't dare to do not much in the company of other people, we lose the social musculature for hanging out that Liming warns us about. Four. Maybe it's a, our solitude muscles have atrophied problem. Speaking of musculature, I'm wondering too if some of this is because we have lost the muscle for boredom and solitude. We carry around these supercomputers in our pockets everywhere and never have to be bored, but we never really have to be alone either. We can text our entire social circle at any given time or eavesdrop on their lives via social media 
or just consume entertainment that makes us feel less alone for a time. Solitude, like boredom, is a muscle that will atrophy without use, and all of our great wisdom traditions point to solitude as an essential practice. The Buddha said, apply yourself to solitude. One who does so will see things as they are. In Jewish scripture, Moses and Elijah experienced spiritual awakenings of sorts only after 40 days in the desert. In the Tao Te Ching, it says, ordinary men hate solitude, but the master makes use of it, embracing his aloneness, realizing he is one with the whole universe. In the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna advises, those who aspire to the state of yoga should seek the self in inner solitude through meditation. With body and mind controlled, they should constantly practice one-pointedness, free from expectations and attachment to material possessions. Most Christian traditions consider solitude a spiritual discipline modeled after Jesus' own solitude practices related throughout the Gospels. Despite their diversity, we see practices of solitude in nature as vital to most indigenous cultures around the world. Perhaps we confuse loneliness with solitude. Solitude feels uncomfortable for many of us, especially when we don't practice it and experience its benefits. As we've increasingly disconnected from our spiritual and religious traditions, often for good reason, let's be clear, I'm wondering if some of our collective loneliness comes from an inability to sit still with ourselves. We think what we're feeling is loneliness when really it's just that we feel uncomfortable being alone with ourselves because we don't have to do it as much anymore. So the difference between loneliness and solitude gets murkier. Maybe it's a we're only counting human social connection problem. Another thing we're thinking about is how our disconnection from the natural world plays into the loneliness epidemic. I have a solid five minute snuggle session with my dog before I get out of bed every morning that I guarantee you does something good for my mental health and serotonin levels. My best cooling off place is a garden or a walk in the woods. I can go in completely pissed about something and calm down considerably in less than 10 minutes. We all have experiences like this where we might not be connecting with another human, but we're definitely connecting with the more than human world. But the data is clear that we're collectively spending far less time in the natural world than ever before in human history. Is it a coincidence that we are also reporting feeling far lonelier? Lastly, it's complicated. I think it is great that we're collectively talking about loneliness, but as we tend to do, we act like there is a practical five-step solution that we can follow to resolve the problem. Instead, we should be talking about the complexities of the problem, acknowledging how we all might be impacted differently, and most of all, offering ourselves self-compassion and curiosity instead of judgment and critique. You have to check out the actual newsletter for this week's Scattering Seeds, where I share things that help us lean into nature's wisdom, which you can find at sarahbytheseason.substack.com. Thanks, as always, for listening. If you know of someone else who might like this sort of thing, I would love it if you would share it with them. You don't know how big of a difference it makes to writers and creators when you share our work. Learn more at sarahbytheseason.com. And here's to finding some time to hang out in the week ahead.